had a weird aftertaste. I wasn't sure exactly what it was, but my first impression was almost kind of that herbal kind of tea flavor. Like, you, you know, when you drink like some warm tea or something, you get that kind of like herbalness on the, on your tongue. It was kind of like that. I and like yeah, and the I, aftertaste like if you blow into your mouth and just f- yeah feel mm-hmm, that taste, mm-hmm. it's like you just drank some tea. I get that too. Sweet tea. Um, Sweet I, tea. I don't yeah. like that. It's um, it, this this beer has a vegetal finish that I don't. I've I've never understood why it has it. But yeah, it's annoying. But again, the biggest problem with this beer was that it's not just too sweet. It needs uh, more bitter. Why are you telling me all the things I should hate about this beer? I'm just telling you what I think about it. <laughs> what should I like about this beer? Well, I think overall it does taste good. It's it does taste tasty. Good. It's just not what I wanted it to be. Man, speaking of this, I am, um, especially after getting some whiskey here, I'm fully beveraged. I've got my water, <clears throat> coffee. Which whiskey are we doing? Beer. and one. I don't know. Which one do you want to do? Do you want to do that Baker's? Let's do the Baker's. Okay. I'll just grab it whenever you get a minute. I'll grab it. Grab it. Oh. <laughs> you forgot you were tethered. That could have been bad. Well, especially since it's it's like one of those cartoons. Like the dog's <laughs> running away from its the thing it's tied to. And then it gets jerked back. I know. I wasn't thinking. Um anyway. Well, Mr. Stressed out, not sleeping. Sick. Sick. Gee. I, I do want to say right off the bat, sorry for anyone who's waiting for an invite to the Slack channel. I was sick the last couple of days. I wasn't really getting online much. Uh, so I got to those this morning. I would say, oh, that's why you ignore my texts, but you also you always ignore my texts. So it's nothing new. When did I ignore your texts? You always do. Jeez. You're, you're a bad texter. Can I open it? Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> That's supposedly from Texas, right? What's it called? Baker's? Sour Mash Whiskey. Baker's. Texas Texas Whiskey. Aged seven years. Kentucky Straight Bourbon is what it says. <laughs> All right. Well, John, let's get... What, hopefully this will make it into the show. So let's get, let's get rolling on topics. What have you, uh, you been working on, man? You still working on this uh, integration thing? I'm sure you are because that sounded like that was pretty massive. Yeah, I'm still How's working that going? on it. Uh, good and bad. Good and bad. Is that what you this financial force code you were looking at? Was that what that was for? Yeah. I mean, we don't have to get into the integration part of it, but I did have some questions for you that I <laughs> I got stuck on a, on a few points because I at some point I wanted to abstract myself from the data model a little bit. And so that meant uh that meant I was venturing the territory of um kind of creating like what I was calling these repository classes that would just basically handle communicating between getting data out of Salesforce and getting it into my objects with the hope that I was going to be able to mock those and stub them out and do all that kind of mock stuff. Mock the repositories? Yeah. Yeah. So, no, I, so I do this. I mean, this is the repository pattern. Um, but yeah, it's just like you you get your data from somewhere. Where that is shouldn't be the the your business logic, your domain code shouldn't know that that's from a database or whatever. You know, your repository should expose methods that are business Centric, like yeah. you know, find account by name or whatever, right? And then 
and then you, however you implement your repository, you know, you'll have an actual implementation of the, that repository interface that then knows to go to Salesforce or some web service or wherever, right. or some mocked out implementation that just returns fakes or, you know, whatever. Yeah, but I was finding the experience a bit, a bit kind of like going down the rabbit hole because, you know, I, okay, so I implemented an interface and then I, I was teetering whether or not I was going to have some like base repository class, which I still might because I'm seeing some repetitive code in there. Uh, particularly when, because I abstracted my objects as well into entity objects. And so there's a two entity method and a two S object method that kind of translates them back and forth. I could have used some kind of like mapper pattern or entity mapper pattern, but I was like, oh, I don't want another class. I'll just freaking create these methods and have Why doesn't do your it. repository just return? Is it not, I'm confused. The repository was to return S object to get S objects from Salesforce. I mean, it's, you, you know, doing Sockwell and Sossel things, right? Yeah, again, that's part of the rabbit hole. I mean, I went, I started down that path and I was like, well, I don't want to have this dependency on these objects in this, at this layer. I want that to be abstracted. So I wanted, I wanted to further remove them from that. So then I had these, these other objects that I, that would represent that data. Um, and so I, was just, I just kept, you know, abstracting, abstracting, abstracting to the point where I was like, I'm not happy with this. No, well, and also, I mean, you got to be careful in the Salesforce world. You abstract you just don't have that much space. I mean, again, in terms of you know, there's no namespace, so this is all in one big, big global space. And if just for getting some accounts from the database, you know, you're, you've got you know seven different interfaces and implementations involved, then you're going to have you're going to have a. I was, mess. I was already coming in, coming across name conflicts. Also, the the case intensity of Salesforce was getting to me. You know, I'd have um. I have a concept of an operator, and so I'd have like lowercase operator and uppercase operator. The operator was actually an enum type, and when I, I was having these weird bugs, I was like, "Why is this not compiling?" And it, and I was like, "Oh crap!" It's because I've basically changed what an operator type enum is into a variable, and now it's not doesn't have the actual type information in it. So that was kind of a pain. I kept I kept having to remember that I can't do that kind of stuff. And of course, the other problem you run into when you just try to get really cute in any way whatsoever is just extremely limited type system and in generics and you know you end up with lots of casting and yeah there's there's no generics so that meant you know you know with a lot of this stuff i couldn't i I had to build like the all these other really more concrete objects than i wanted to to handle typing i mean it's weird when you when you in when you implement an interface you can return a type that's an interface but you can return the concrete version of that and the the compiling works fine, but you can't pass that in. It's weird. I don't know if I'm explaining that correctly. So I could have like an I repository, and in that it says get instance, and it returns an I repository. And maybe I have a account repository. Well, I can modify in my concrete of that repo- I repository. I can modify that return type to be the concrete um, account repo- um, repository because it's technically an, uh, an I repository. So it works fine. But on the arguments, I can't pass in an uh, account repository. I have to pass I have, in the arguments. I can't change that to the concrete. I have to keep that as the interface, mm. which is weird. <clears throat> but none of that would be an issue if I could just use a generic. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like you're. Getting, you know, there's there's cases where like there's a cases distraction happy to me, but oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I am, and I've noticed that, and I've realized that, and so I've kind of tried to balance myself out a little bit more. Um, so I'm I'm hoping I'm going down the right path with that in terms of the repository. I still have the repository concept, but I don't have I no longer have like a data context concept that I was toying with, which is basically going to be you know is this a mock context or is this a 
Salesforce context or is this a whatever context? I decided I wasn't going to go down that road. You have like an iRepository factory converter simple uh, singleton <laughs> mapper? <laughs> no. I do have a couple of things that I did call factories, but those were those were for good reason. I had I had certain types that needed to kind of exist, but they all had the same interface. I just needed their typing to be abstracted. Back back when I used to try to do really full like true unit test coverage, um, I used to do a lot of had a lot more abstraction. Mm-hmm. Um, I would abstract all my you know any data source was abstracted, so. Not, you know, no controller or service class or domain object knew anything about um, SQL, for example, or mm-hmm. where to go get data. Other than, you know, it would go get data from a repository, from a, a you know, a, a, an abstract repository that was passed into it. Right. <clears throat> well, that means that in any entry point in the code, whether that be like a Visual Force controller or a web service uh, controller or a, a test class, you have to something has to instantiate the concrete versions of things like the act, you know, the, the, the account repository that actually goes to SQL to, to get mm-hmm. things right. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you know, you'd build some kind of, um, a factory, right. And so you'd have different implementations of the factory. You might have a testing implementation of it that returns test data or, a, you know, the production yeah. implementation that return that actually goes to the database. And so, or returns <laughs> the factory returns repositories that go to the database is really the way it works. Right. And that works. That works fine. I mean, the problem is you end up with again without namespaces, a relatively simple task. You end up with you know twenty five new classes and interfaces and things for some mm-hmm. for like a, a Visual Force page. And it's just and and on on bigger systems that stuff does kind of start to matter. You can test things more independently and eat more easily. Um, but since I've changed my philosophy to really rely way more on end-to-end tests and integra- you know functional tests versus unit tests, I just don't. I find myself not doing that anymore. I know I've talked about this a few times. Yeah, maybe more than a few. I don't. I know I repeat myself all the time, but or so my wife tells me. I'm not sure I believe her. <laughs> but well, for uh, me, I'm still very much in the world of unit testing, mainly because well, again, I, what's, I, are you talking about <clears throat> actual unit tests where you mock out the data? I mean, if your if your unit tests are setting up data or anything, then they're not unit tests. No, I mean I've I've gotten you're, to, t- you're talking about in, f- functional I, tests, which is fine. Uh, okay, okay. E- either way, I mean I, I have I haven't even touched on the objects that are actually manipulating Salesforce data right now. I'm building out a fair amount of logic, um, a fair amount of typecasting type objects and things like that. And those don't really touch the database. And those I have been testing. I mean, I don't, I don't have like a test class for every type, but that group of type, you know, like the, I don't know, a converter type interface would have one t- unit test and it would test all those all those different converters. Um, so I, I'm that, down I mean, to that. That sounds like a unit test, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So I feel like I'm using unit tests in the proper way here. I'm not, I'm, and I haven't over and overdone it. You know, I, I did at some point think I was going to have a test method for each one of these and a test class for each one of these, and I thought oh, I'm just going to simplify things. Yeah. Um, one one thing that enables my philosophy of of relying way more on functional tests is the fact that it's really quite easy in Salesforce to i to basically isolate uh, or create. Da- uh, like data, what do you call them? Like scenarios, like a, text, a t- test fixture that includes only the data you want because, mm-hmm. you know, ever since Salesforce did the, um, you know, you get, by de- by default, you don't see any of your production data. Like you have, essentially have right. an empty database. So that makes it really easy, actually, to 
get the kind of coverage of your code you need without having to do unit tests. Because you know the problem if you if you if your database connection or whatever sees all your data, then you can't you can't set up the test scenarios that you need. So that's when you would do you probably would you know then again want different implementations of your repositories and things like that so that you could when you say when you call find account by name you can return a predictable thing that your test needs mm-hmm. whereas if it's going against your production database and you're using real repo- you know production repositories then you don't know what you're going to get in production at production at time right. right so the fact that you know salesforce has this pretty nice uh, transactional test model where you start out with an empty database for most things of course this is broken for a lot of things, Ch- the Chatter API and a bunch of other stuff. It's kind of broken on or it's inconsistent. Like some some things uh, do have your production data and some don't, like users and like a lot of the setup data for some mm-hmm. reason. It's, it's I don't understand it, which is, you know, another issue. But at least for most things, it's it's pretty useful and it's it's pretty easy and you kind of get it for free. So I take advantage of that. I just, it ends up with way less code that, in my opinion, have just more of it. I've still got, I still got just as much coverage. I mean, I can get, I typically will have, you know, 80 to 90% coverage on things. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's it's good coverage. I mean, it works. It's, it's actually testing what the customer cares about. Yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah, I think, I think you're kind of describing some of the things I'm kind of learning in that, I, th- I think with a lot of these concepts, a lot of these design patterns that we, that we try to force into Salesforce, we're kind of forcing this thing that worked for a completely different yes. technology, and we're not really using the strength of Salesforce. Yep. Uh, uh, like you said, I mean, because there's no data, it was essentially when you insert a record, you're technically mocking that record because it doesn't exist. It's all virtual. Um, essentially, that is your mocking framework. Um, and I noticed that in, when I was even building some of my unit tests on things that didn't rely on the database, you know, I was trying to over-engineer and over-mock things and try to get consistent results when I really didn't have to. Yeah. Um, and it was all because I was trying to apply all these different concepts. And a lot of those concepts may exist mainly to solve the problem of, you know, you don't have a database to connect to. Not necessarily because you shouldn't, but because you couldn't. Yeah. I guess. I think, I think about all that. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, does this... Does this in any way segue into that? You wanted to mention something about that that financial force code you were looking at. Yeah, because I, you know, it's not, I, I was going down the path of abstraction. I was like, okay, well, I have this repository, um, and it, it's really more of a question of typing. You know, strong type, strongly typing things. You know, do I abstract things and make and and have no dependencies, including no dependencies on the fields and the queries and all that kind of stuff? And they're all you know basically basically string queries. Yeah. No. Um, and I was just—I just wanted to see what they did because I know they completely abstracted that. And I was at like, some you point, know what? at some point, when you don't, when you when you think you know, when you go down down that path of like, oh, I'm not going to depend on anything, then, then you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, like I mean, I realize that Salesforce does have you know, it's nice that when you can do static Sockle queries, that it's all static. It's because it's statically checked at the at compile time, and that's you know, right. there, you get a lot from that. I mean, that's well, it reduces errors because it, at compile time again, it checks your fields and and you can see, oh, this field is not right or this doesn't exist. Um, also, you you bypass the dependency checker too. If someone tries to go and delete a field that your code is depending on, oh, that's true, it's gone. Yeah, no, that's because you have no dependency on it in your code because it's all strings. Yep. Um, so I, you know, I I just that doesn't work with uh like flows and stuff yet, does it, or do, have they fixed that? I don't know. Like you can de- delete. F- Fields yeah, flow there's still a couple of things that. where that's not the case, but at least, you know, when it comes to the code, that's, you know, that's one thing I do rely on. And that's one thing I didn't want to lose. You know, I didn't want to lose that ability. Um, now, if you're going to refactor your entire code base very frequently, maybe it's better to have no, no no direct dependencies and so that you can be able to kind of manipulate it and change it in one package all mm-hmm. at once. 
sometimes, I, the, the, sometimes theoretically, the dependencies, theoretically that seems fun, but that that's that's going to be you know I mean <laughs> I'm not saying it's fun, but I'm saying yeah. you, you've been in situations where you create a dependency and that dependency also has a recursive dependency, and if you change one and one gets out of sync, it can never get in sync, and so you end up having to like comment out your entire yeah, class yeah. right just to get rid of that dependency and then add it back in. Um, I had to do that several times when I was refactoring this. Yeah, that, that's that whole the problem with you know the compilation model that Salesforce has. And in fact, there's <laughs> that there's that bug that I've uh, had to get back on Twitter and start complaining about, which is you can get a situation like if you're compiling like a, an Apex controller and a Visual Force page, and you let's say you remove a, a controller property mm-hmm. from the controller, and you remove the Visual Force page's reference to it, and you submit them both for comp- comp- compilation at the same time. Yeah, there's a bug where Salesforce won't compile that. So you end up having to uh, compile your Visual Force page with it, that removes the reference to the controller property, and then compiling the controller. Now, oh, hopefully, yeah. you could, hopefully, the change to your controller. Let's let's say you also had a situation where so you remove that controller property, but you also added a new one that the Visual Force page references. Well, now you can compile your Visual Force page first because it references a new property that the, that the Controller hasn't been has hasn't been compiled with yet, hmm. and so you can really get into. I mean, and it, oh, it's just so frustrating because this is one of those bugs that Salesforce supposedly deprioritized and it's back, and and there's a new um, there's a new issue number for it. So I don't know. I don't see how that's not that that should be like a a, a P one issue. I don't know. Like basic basic compiling is not working. Like basic <laughs> you know basic dependency. I don't know whatever that model is is not working. I don't, this is one of those things. I don't see how anyone who's doing non-trivial deployments is not just tripping over the stuff constantly. I'm actually kind of lucky in that I've been working like a couple of my products that were giant code bases. I'm not working actively on anymore, which is great because they're they're complex. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, complex things are happening at a fast pace, and so you hit you just hit metadata bugs. All the time, just constantly, and and things like this bug I just talked about. I mean, that just completely breaks any kind of automated deployment. I mean, that's total manual deployment. Like you're manually editing, maybe maybe in multiple rounds, yeah, trying to get things in because Salesforce can't, the compiler can't recognize that you're compiling an updated version of a controller and a page at the same time, right? And and these two <laughs> things are compatible with each other, but it just it can't it can't handle that for whatever reason. Yeah, it's almost like it, it basically has to remove all the dependency checking in order to deploy. Like it, it can't it can't do that. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. This they need to fix it. I mean it's like it, it needs to turn off dependency checking, compile, turn it back on and recompile, something like that. Yeah. Or, or yeah, compile them separately, then run a run run the dependency checks or whatever. Yeah, I mean, like this that. is all over my head. So there are smarter people than me working on it, but I, I hope they're and it's it's a management problem. It's not an engineering problem. There are plenty of smart people at Salesforce that I'm sure would love to fix this, but they've they're told what to work on. They're given priorities mm-hmm. by product managers who are given priority by VPs who are given priority by you know Alex Dayon and Brett Taylor and Mark Vinioff. And it's like you know no we need to go after the new shiny Einstein all the things. I we no, don't care about Visual that's Force. Wrong. They don't care about Visual that's Force. Wrong. Their their What's work wrong? is prioritized by the idea exchange and us in the community. Uh, yeah, oh, Trailblazers yeah, determine what they work on. That's what we do. Yeah, you know you get for that, John. What do I get for that? All right, so I'm well, going to ask you a third time. Do you do you want to talk? You said some, you want to talk about that financial force code. 
I've been talking about it. In what way? Well, in that I was talking about how things were so abstracted and then you went on, you went off on that one. (laughs) Yeah. So I've looked at that financial force. What is that? What do they call that? That whole package? Is that the FF lib or? Yeah. FF lib. Yeah. It's gotten bigger and it's gotten crazier. I mean, I I understand what they're doing and the concepts that they're employing in there, but it's not for me. It's just not. I, I don't need that level of abstraction. I actually like things to be more strongly typed. In fact, one of the issues I had is I started out, I have a bunch of types in the system, but they're abstract types. They're types that you can configure and say, okay, here's a here's something I configured and it's this type. Well, I had those all in constants in my code and I decided, oh, I'm going to make those enums because I, I want them strongly typed. I don't want to have to do this text comparing all, all over the place. Yeah, yeah. Um, tangent. Let me go off on a small tangent here. Why is it enums do not support a get get by name? Java doesn't support it. C sharp kind of supports Java it does. with a parse. No, Java's Java and greatly enhanced enumerations in Java six, I think. Really? Okay. Yeah, they're pretty nice. They're almost like full blown classes. Well, C sharp doesn't do a good job of supporting it. Basically, you can do a try parse with a text string, and if it's not correct, it fails. So you have to do like an is defined. You have to basically call some other method that says, "Oh, is this a valid enum? If it is, then com- then get me it or parse it." Um, which is kind of wordy, um, but all I really want is, you know, my enum dot get by name. Get me the enum. Um, this is really only one place where that's going to be injected into the code. Then everywhere else, it's going to be strongly typed. So I wanted that. I wanted to have that that strongly type typedness in my code. What do yeah. you call that? <clears throat> Just because it was safer that way. Um, so, anyways, popping the stack on that. Um, it just seemed like I was losing way too much with. I mean, yeah, everything is abstracted and everything, but not only is it big and bloated, and maybe for a larger team working on a big, an application as big as Financial Force, I, I can see the point. But the, for the bigger me, the application, the really the more abstraction you need, and and they they have a large app. I can attest. Anyone who's who's worked with a Financial Force installation knows that yeah. it's gigantic and it almost completely ruins your Salesforce org. So I I, I don't. So my my only thing is I cringe at someone who's just going to go oh I'm going to install the enterprise library and I'm going to start using that as a lone developer as their starting point. I'm just like oh I, that's kind of scary to me. Well, especially if you don't understand the patterns because we all know. I mean, I think we've all anyone who's who's learned patterns or watch people learn. I mean, you you know the first thing you do is you're like okay how oh here's these three new patterns and it's like how, how can I use these now? Like you you know, you see all kinds of misuse of them and, and until you, you know, yeah. until you, I think, have some experience with them, you know, well, know you're going to misuse them. I don't know. Is, is, is a misuse of a pattern a bad thing? I mean, the pattern, uh, I, I mean, mean, they're, they're kind of loose concepts for the most part. I mean, you have patterns that conflict with well, each so, other. Yeah. Can they be reused or can they be abused and used correctly, incorrectly? Oh, yes, big time. Um, but is that inevitable for a, a developer who's like just learning these patterns? It's probably inevitable. I don't know. I mean, especially in the, I, I remember when I, you know, got my first design patterns book and I was, I think I have it, you know, learning, which one is it? <laughs> I think I have your gang of four book. Oh, do you really? Yeah. In fact, I've been meaning to bring it up to you. Wow. Better. Um, no, it's just, you know, it's like, okay, uh, I understand this pattern. How can I use this now? And I just, I can remember, I can remember specifically like inappropriately using these patterns because I didn't really understand them or, but I mean, that's, I learned by doing it wrong. I, you know, later I was like, "Well, this doesn't work very well." I didn't obviously I didn't understand this pattern very well, and then, you know, you learn. So if it's in the if it's in the service of learning, I guess that's okay. I mean, it's all it's always again. I know I've talked about this, but it's always good if you can work with like someone who's like a senior. Yeah, and I don't mean in terms of years served, time served. I mean in terms of like experience. How, yeah, I mean how how I mean is this person someone who's just has always been honing their craft? I'd rather have someone like that who only has five years experience than the guy who's you know for thirty years is just written the same crappy code over and over and over. Yeah. 
Well, I don't, I don't want to knock on the library because I think it's good. And I, I love that it's on it's open source on GitHub and you can kind of read through it and see the comments and kind of try to understand. And boy, are there comments. There are a lot of it's comments. It's like, you know, a class that has <laughs> 25 actual lines will be 400 lines long. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's a, I think it's a good place to go and look and try to research and try to learn from some of these concepts and I don't know, maybe adapt them if you, where you need them. But um you know, I, I just, I prefer to kind of use the the looser concepts, but still employ some strongly typed typedness. I'm going to keep saying that word. I don't know if that's a real word. Typedness in my code, because I just, I, I like it better. I like letting the compiler help me. No, I do too. I mean, I like static compilers. I mean, that's one reason why Java is still kind of a go-to language for me for, um, for you know, outside of Salesforce stuff. I mean, I don't get me wrong. I love Python. I can do, st- I can get stuff done fast in JavaScript, but man, it's, it is nice there's it's nice to have static compilation static type checking yeah um, and i know people argue i remember when the when ruby got to be a hot thing you know the the rubyists were like well that's when you know just because you have a compiler doesn't mean that doesn't mean that your code's doing the right thing that's what tests for and you know because those guys have to have really full test coverage yeah to even know that you have the semicolons in the right or you know well, i guess ruby doesn't have semicolons does it you know just to have you know to make sure that your your, your syntax is correct you've got to have test coverage of that code. Yeah. So getting, you know, syntax checking plus actual type checking out of a out of your compiler is quite nice. I mean, you you learn about mistakes immediately. I don't have to run tests to find out that I I'd specified the wrong type or something, you know, something doesn't have a property I expected it to have or I've got a semicolon in the wrong place. Right. Yeah. Um, a lot of things that just take some ambiguity out. Because, I mean, one, one of the things I was trying to guard against when I had everything just as text and constants was, well, what happens if I pass this in and it's not case sense and it's, you know, it's lowercase or uppercase for some reason. Even though I have full control over how it's going to get make it into the code, I still felt like I had to guard against that kind of stuff. So by using enums and just more strongly typed classes and things, I, I was able to kind of avoid that that anxiety that I get. You know, because I'm, I'm, I tend to try to err on defensive side of programming. So you'll see a lot of null checking, redundancy null checking, in which I, I I hate that I do that, but at the same time, I feel like it's necessary. It's rare that I have get a null reference about, error. Have we talked about null check, like the code that just has, just littered with it? I don't know, but mine, mine is littered so, with it. So here's... Everywhere. Here, <laughs> Even in private methods where I can control the, the inputs. I'm so my like, strategy on that is basically like it, my... At boundaries at like I don't know like a dom- like your domain boundary or mm-hmm. really your service layer for example like which is the way you get should you know that's the way you get into your domain is through a service layer the service layer is what should be checking because it because you don't have control over who's calling it so theoretically right. right you know right I mean that's just it's a great place to define a boundary what if you and, don't trust yourself and the, well <laughs> the, the, honestly then your 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 test cover should should expose that as well which it has in cases. But once it's inside, you know, once it's past your service layer, I mean, you, I don't know. I don't think I don't think the null checks everywhere are helping you. If you if you've checked everything getting into your into your you know past your service layer, then it should be good. And the code that's what that is under your control that you've got good test coverage for and everything. You know, that, I don't know. I think having the, a bunch of null checks all over the place within that not only makes your code hard, you know, obscures your code, makes it harder to read, but it's harder to maintain going forward. And it, and if anything. Ironically, it may make it more bug prone because it is, it is a lot more code, more things to go wrong, you know, harder to read. Well, I mean, the way I do it, it's not really harder to read. It's it, I keep my methods pretty small, um, but it can have unintended consequences because 
I do return a lot of nulls because I'll usually have a, val- a default value, and that's usually null. It'll it'll try to run its logic, and if it can't because the argument that you passed in is null, then it just returns null. Um, and that can then I then you're, that, you're that raising starts, red flags with me, right? Well, now. that that starts the pattern of okay, well that might return null, so I have to check that return value to see if it's going to be null, and then that might return null. So I so I just keep going up the stack of just null checking all the way through. Yeah, are you familiar with the null object pattern? Seriously, <laughs> no. yeah, I mean. Uh, There's a pattern for everything, Jeremy. There, there is. Um, trying to find a description of it. A null object is an object with no referenced value or with defined neutral behavior. So it's like almost like there's it's a special instance of something that mm. that referen- that that indicates the semantics of null, but in in the, in the language itself, it's actually not null. It's an instance of that of that type. Anyway, I won't be able to describe it very well, but it's uh, useful, and I suggest people. So, what's a good strategy for that? Do you do you throw an error when you when you see that null, or do no, you? No, because just... in your case, null is an null is an expected. Well, it is because I, I mean, you're mean, passing a lot, null. A lot in, of times, then, I'm like, okay, go do null. something. If you can't do something, return null, and then then my higher level code can go. Is this null? Was it able to do something with this? No, then do this. And so, in, in some cases, it's a valid pattern to me. Well, I think the way you're describing the way you're using nulls is an anti-pattern. You shouldn't, you know, it's it's it's, it's Argued to be a bad idea to like to return null to indicate something. That shouldn't. That should be. That should be something that doesn't happen. So if you go to get a an account from the system, what do you return if there's no, if that account doesn't exist? So for example, if I got a repository and I've got a find by ID, mm-hmm. and I expect that I can find something, um, mm-hmm. and it doesn't, that's an exception. I throw like a you know record not found exception or something like that, whatever, some kind of data exception. Uh, see, I I really hate throwing exceptions. <laughs> I well, I don't know why. Exceptions are super useful construct, and and you know I, you I shouldn't know. be scared to use them in a responsible way. I mean, ideally, if I was to use them, I would get much better tracing in my debug logs because then I would see exactly at what point that error was thrown, yeah. the line, and everything. And you can let but the so... you can let the appropriate code handle it. For example, you can let maybe the immediate the immediate caller. You can maybe it makes doesn't make sense for it to happen. You can have it bubble up, right? You know, yeah. handle it at the at the correct place. Yeah, I, th- I think for me, it's just it's such a break in my logic, and I'd rather go. Okay, well, if this is not, I, I wouldn't. Me- I wouldn't argue that all your null checking is a break in logic, a break in behavior. I don't know. I guess I'm saying, well, if, if this if this isn't can, the way expected, you can basically I, move all that null checking into a catch block <laughs> and let that catch block handle. And and everything in your try block is nice looking. But then I you can't. Know, then then I can't get my hundred percent coverage because I have all these try catches that I can't I can't execute. Hey, if you've if you've if your repository is an interface, you implement you implement a test repository that that, return, that does throw that exception, and then you can test all that code. If you're going directly to Sockwell, and it's one of these tables that you can't you can't do like you can't do the CL data false basically. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have a problem. Like you can't tell the data, you can't tell Salesforce, hey, return no records on this because like it's, like for example, if you have something that queries users, I think users is one of those that it's always going to return the users. Yeah. Um, or, or, or like, you know, if you're relying on DML exceptions, then I mean, you can't, you can't generate DML exceptions. You can't throw a DM, you can't throw any of these built-in, ex- Salesforce doesn't let you throw any of these built-in exceptions. So you can't, it makes it very difficult or impossible in a lot of cases to test, to get coverage on on your code that handles DML exceptions and whatever the other built-in yeah. exceptions are. But I mean, I mean, should I be worrying about that? Should I be... I mean, we, we've talked about before the fallacy of trying to get 100% code coverage. No, I don't think you should try to get 
is it, it feels it's, so good. It's, it's nice it to be so able good to see the numbers. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. It's a, it's you're wasting people's money <laughs> because <laughs> it gets it gets increment or it gets you know like exponentially more hard to get the closer you get to one hundred percent, the more difficult it gets to get there. And it's you know at some point. It's uh well. It's not. It's not really just seeing the numbers. I mean, I I joke. Law, and, was it the law of diminishing returns? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I make the joke that you know I want to see the hundred percent, but but there is a there is a certain amount of assurance that comes with okay. I've executed all my code. I've covered all the scenarios that I can, that I think I can, or that I think are worthwhile. The, the code's been touched. It didn't error under normal conditions. Um, so that makes me feel better about moving on to the higher level parts of the code. If I start with my lower level stuff and that's working great, you know, my converter knows how to convert a string to a boolean value correctly i don't have to worry about it it's there i just call it and it does what it needs to do and i move on and so that feels good that that reduces anxiety for me so whenever i get to these higher levels and i start diminishing that where i'm like i've only got 80 percent on this class that sucks i hate that because then i feel like anything else i build on top of that is just built on this this shaky foundation some some classes depending on what they do are just it's just going to be impossible to get you know 95 percent coverage on Especially smaller classes, because if you've got a small class with a couple of catch blocks in it that you can't throw those exceptions, you, you, mean, you might only have like 40% coverage on that class. Yeah. But yeah. in the grand scheme of things, it's, you know, you should be able to get 80%, 85% coverage on things. Yes, I do. It seems not to be not that hard. Well, you're just special. Aren't you know you? what? So since we've been talking about Financial Force and Apex, uh, we should mention that a uh, friend of the show, Chris Peterson, is now the product manager for Apex. Did you see that? I did. Yeah. I had I was catching up on the news since I was out and but yeah, that's that's awesome. So congratulations, Chris. I promise to try to not abuse you that much. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Applause is a little light. No, um yeah, no, that's cool. I think he's God, he's such the perfect person for that because he's gone so deep on Apex. I mean, he worked at Financial Force on these giant code bases and mm-hmm. he's I mean he's I think he's probably explored every facet of Apex that's possible and probably discovered, you know, 95% of the bugs in Apex. So he he knows where the bodies are buried. He so probably he, knows what he wants to do. I think he'd be I think he'd be a great product manager. I mean he's really perfect. He's you know I think he's got a good he seems like he's got a good business sense, but he's also, mm-hmm. you know, again, he's he's just been down in the trenches and he's worked with Apex for so long and and you know so I think that yeah. uh, I'm really excited about that. I think especially with this new compiler, supposedly whatever you know that's supposed to make it possible to actually improve apex <laughs> apparently it was impossible before but if you know if that's true and now we got chris as the product manager i'm i'm expecting to see some things out of apex in the next i don't know i mean you got to give him time but maybe by trailhead dx some some possibly some interesting announcements who knows yeah no pressure chris yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh. So so let's let's uh, play a little game. If if you were the PM of Apex, what, what's the first thing you would do? Burn it to the ground? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, I guess it depends on where you are, what your experience is. No, I'm talking is. about you personally. Your me, experience. me personally. Yeah. Oh, would, you, would you just like deep dive, lock yourself in a room with a couple of people, and just say, "Okay, we're tackling this metadata issue right yeah, now"? Yeah, I, mean, I would. I think the first thing I'd do is I would. I would. But kinda, is would, that a different team? Is Apex and metadata considered two different teams? Well, no, because metadata is handled by the team that is, owns that code. Well, there and there is a metadata team that's yeah. responsible for the overall framework. At least that's my understanding. I don't know. I think the first thing I do is kind of, kind of, sir, like look at kind of what initiatives I was interested in, and then namespaces, yeah, or whatever <laughs> namespaces, you know. 
Now they're all working on switch or switch statements. Right I think now. it would be funny for you to go in there and then go. And they invite you in. Okay, let's 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 try to solve this namespace issue, Jeremy. And you guys sit down, and you end up leaving it going, "Crap, I can't solve this namespace." I know. Issue. Well, that's the thing. That's why I said. I think you. I think you figure out like what all your initiatives are, and then figure out what's possible. I yeah. mean, what's the, you know, what's the pri- the price value of these things? I mean, what does it cost to implement them, and what how much value is that going to return to our customers? Yeah, I mean, we always focus on the kind of is it an engineering issue, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's just a time and money problem. I don't know. You know what? I feel like programming, especially it's especially Apex, which is basically Java. I mean, it's, it's kind of a solved problem. Like we know how to do namespaces, we know how to do generics. Will it be hard? Does it? Will it take some engineering resources? Especially the, the, the difficult thing is is evolving a language that has so much um, mm-hmm. work in production out there. That's that's hard. That's what's really hard. Yeah, and yeah, that that takes engineering resources to do that. But Salesforce is a $10 billion company. I mean, I expect them to be able to do that. I know they've got their spread thin. They've got, you know, how many clouds do they have now? How many clouds do we have to you, John? I don't know, because they're all they're all uh, Einsteins now. <laughs> they're all Einsteins and bears and tigers. So I know, there, I know there's... Lions, tigers, and bears. Oh, my. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Salesforce, is in, they're in a lot of different businesses, a lot of clouds. They've got, you know, a million customers. And uh, they're just... They're, I know there's... I mean, it seems like they've got a lot of money. You would think so. But it actually spreads pretty thin, pretty fast. I'd be, I mean, how big do you think the Apex team is? I, is there an Apex team? If so, is it like is it like a few people, two people? It's one know. person. It's I Chris. Know, I don't know if it's. It might be. It might be just Chris. I don't know if it's two people, twenty people. But I wouldn't be surprised if it's smaller than what people think it is. Like people that actually are core working on the compiler and the language. Yeah, I would. I wouldn't doubt it. So. I mean, it's always, you always have, resources are always scarce. Mm-hmm. Because even if you work with a company that's flushed with cash, here's the problem. Flush with cash, I guess is the phrase. Um, that cash is all owned by investors. And they want, they either want you to do something productive with it or they want it back. Mm-hmm. So you, so even if you're, you know, even a company like Apple, right, which has just tons of excess cash, that cash is owned by its investors. So it can't just go off and do some crazy project and throw money away. Everything still has a budget at Apple. Right. Everything needs to make money or needs to be, it needs to prove that it contributes. There's, there's just not, they don't let you, uh, I and mean, this is from what I've been told, and you know, there's contrary to some, what's, what you might think, what might be kind of intuitive, it's, you know, there's just, that doesn't exist. But anyway, I'm, I, I, if anyone can tame that beast, uh, I think Chris can. Well, again, no pressure, huh? I know. Well, since we're talking about Chris, let's talk about some more uh, uh, employee changes. Oh, yeah. What do we call okay. that? Yeah, well, I, yeah, this is interesting. So, and I don't know what the order was here, but so Adam Seligman. Uh, I heard Shauna Wolverton first and then added, added I heard Seligman. about them all, like, literally at the exact same time. Really? So I don't know if they were the same day or if one was before. No, I think they were both the same day. I think it just happened to be the, the day they both did it. <laughs> So yeah, Shauna, she's I don't I don't really know her very well. I know some people seem to know her pretty well. No, I met her. Um, she's awesome. I like her. Well, she's fun the only thing I know about her is I when I asked my question at Trailhead DX about Apex and or why you know why Salesforce gets to work in Java and Scala and we're stuck with this extremely <laughs> limited and unproductive language, um, she kind of just brushed me off. So yeah. no, I mean I, I remember talking to her when I, at one of the I guess the last summit ever, um, but. Um, yeah, I mean, she took criticism really well, and some of the things that we talked about, she was well aware of, and 
you know, I got the impression that it was just, it was really coming down to a time and money problem for them on some of these things. Uh, that was right around the time when Lightning was first coming out. Yeah. And the, the thing is, you know, I guess back to that for a second, the time versus money. And like, if you don't, if you don't have the time and money to do it right, then why did you do it? Why did you go proprietary? And again, I know this is like the pointless conversation because it's build a, a 10 secure years old. platform. Oh, yeah. Cause you can't do secure with Java or Python. Those are so insecure. <laughs> And and here's the thing: Salesforce does not pub they do not publicize their you know their P zero security flaws and holes that come up. You don't you won't ever hear about them, but they're there, and we don't know how bad it is because or how good it is because you don't know. Well, we don't know. Although I do, I mean, I I they happen. I know that for sure. I just I only hear. I'm sure I don't hear the whole picture. I don't see the no one sees the whole picture except you know probably a few people inside Salesforce. So we, we don't know how good they're doing. I mean, their public record is pretty good. I feel like I, I need to put my tinfoil hat on what, here. What, hey, John, let me ask you this. What does the, what does the Salesforce terms and conditions say about what you can say about these things? Mm. I don't either. I'm, <laughs> somebody needs to do that homework for us. Go, someone go read through those terms and conditions, see if there's any owner stuff like you're not allowed to say bad things or um, you know, you're not allowed to talk about security problems or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> you, you see those things, type of things all the time. I feel like I read Salesforce's Decencies a while back, and it, they were they were not bad. It was, yeah. not, it was not onerous. Um, yeah. So okay. So Shauna's Shauna, and what was she the like a president of something? President of product or you know, these people? They all have the basically the same title. I never know. Yeah, I think she was over all all of the product managers, basically. So, so all the product managers from all the different divisions. She was the head manager of, that. of product yeah. managers, and I think she was right below Parker. I think she reported to Alex, but I could be wrong. Oh, maybe. So maybe well, Alex. Then so to speaking Parker. of speaking of Alex. Um, he, well, we talked about, I think that was probably all of We talked about it last week, but he got promoted or something. What is he? Uh, he, oh, now he's the, he was product. He was product president, president of product. That's what he was. I think mm-hmm. now he's president of strategy or something or chief strategy officer. And Brett Taylor took Alex's place. And, and so here's what I'm wondering. Cause Alex is now, okay. If I'm right. And Shauna reported and maybe Adam did too, to Alex, who mm-hmm. was the product guy, mm-hmm. now Brett is the product guy. And I wonder if they're like, oh, yeah, we're not working for Brett. They don't like him. Or if Brett's like, <laughs> if Brett's cleaning house and he's like, I'm bringing my team in. I mean, this, this, this type of thing happens. This type of thing happens all the time. I mean, it's, it's just well, weird that, like, you know, Salesforce seems to be this company that's still, you know, you basically built your entire career on. They still seem to be majorly on the upswing here still. It's a weird time to leave. And I'm, I mean, is it? So, not, so not Shana says she was, she was with she, them for 14 years. Yeah. That's a long time to be with a company. It is. Especially nowadays. Yeah. I mean, maybe she just needed something new, something different. Totally could be. Or maybe, you know, she's been presented with another opportunity that's maybe better. Maybe she thinks it's better. Yeah. Or she, again, she's just tired of it and she's willing to like, whatever. <laughs> it just, I don't know. Well, even Adam, six years. I mean, that's still a long time. But, but, but having Alex being de- Replaced by Brent, and then at the same time, essentially same time, literally a week later, you got the resignation of Shauna and Adam. So, yeah, it happens. I mean, this is yeah. So this is business. Is uh, do you, do we know where these people are going? Hmm? Has anyone announced where they're going? Uh, no, not that I saw. Yeah, I don't know. I'm ready for whiskey, man. I'm actually tired of this beer. It's a good stop for whiskey. Yeah. Well, so what, okay, did you have any other uh, commentary on on these uh, personnel changes? Not really. I mean, I don't really think there's anything to read into it. I just, I just think it's interesting that. I'm that like, was, I'd, I'm interested to find out where they're going. 
that could be revealing, revelatory. Yeah, like most things, they'll, they'll probably go off, start a company, and Salesforce will buy them. <laughs> and they'll be back. Yeah. Well, Adam and Shauna, if the company you're moving to needs a, a good senior software engineer, let me know. Uh, I'm pretty unemployable. That's my problem. I think so, too. <laughs> That's my problem. No one would want to hire me. Oh, wow. Me. That's what she said. That is really good. Actually, she's never said that, unfortunately. You like this? It smells great. What's the, what's the uh, ABV here? <coughs> oh, that's making you, that must be good. Making you, <coughs> making you oh, my, there. I don't have any water in it. And I don't have any ice. 53.5%. Oh, that's, that's, 100, was, that's 106 proof, John. I was trying to taste it. Oh, 107. It's 107 proof. And the fumes went up my nose. That's a lot of proofs. That's a lot of proofs. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this straight, too. Uh, hmm. Yeah. No, it's good. It's good. Yeah, it is good. I just uh, have to be careful about how I drink it. It was, only, it was 40 bucks. That's, you know, middle of the road, right? Mm-hmm. Um, basically. You can price, certainly- price doesn't mean anything. Price just means not enough people. Price uh, means nothing. Especially know, in the whiskey world. It's such yeah. a scam. Like 90% of whiskey is made all in the same room by, was it IGP? Is that what they're called? I know. I'm going to ruin whiskey for people here. You know, I, I think I've said this before, but I mean, I, I tried to really get into the background of whiskey and find out and really nerd out on it. But then I just found out it was like the handful of distillers and, you know, there's all these blends out there and everything. I'm like, ah, oh, screw this. There's nothing to learn here. Yeah. So here's an article. It's on Daily Beast, but the title is, your quote, craft whiskey is probably from a factory distillery in Indiana. Yeah, that's what it was. Mm-hmm. I thought it was called IGP, like Indiana, like grain product or something. What is it? Oh, MGP. Is that what it stands for? Uh, I don't know, something like that. But it's yeah, it's giant, and they they make like eighty percent of the of the whiskey in this country. I mean, you know, everything from Pappy to Weller's to I mean, all this stuff. It's all. I don't say all, but I still want to try. All. I still want to try some of the 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 uh, hard to get Pappies, and I still I still want to get my hands on some Weller just just so I can taste it. But I don't want to. I'm not going to be one of those guys that goes out there and pays top dollar for it. No, I, I've lucked out. I've I've been at bars at the right time when they were they had like a Pappy 15 or Pappy 20 or something. Mm-hmm. They were doing pours of it and didn't really know what they were worth because I think I've paid 25 bucks a pour for both of those. Mm. Which I don't know. Some people may have gotten it cheaper than that, but n- now I see. I was in a in that, that that bar that I sent you a screen or not not a screenshot. What they call just a photo from like a right. couple weekends ago. Yeah, and they had I think Pappy 15 and they were charging I think. 85 bucks for a pour or something like that. And I'm just wow. like, no. I mean, it was good. I don't know if it was, it's that good. I mean, I think that, well, it's not, it's not that good. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> I don't know if I pay that much for a bottle of it, which is, uh, I'll never get, That's, you know, I, I know I've ranted on this before, but it's so irritating to me. I mean, Weller's 12 year used to be one of my go-to. It's just this basic weeded bourbon. It's just really good though. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but all the whiskey douches found out that the Weller 12 year is basically the, the, the barrels that, Pappy didn't, or they did that old, that old, what is this? Old Van Winkle? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Didn't choose for Pappy, for Pappy 12 or whatever. Cause it's, yeah. it's the same exact mash. It's the same exact juice in, in the same exact barrels in the same exact rack house. It's just that they get their pick because where the barrels are in relation to, well, first of all, these are, these are like multi, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen these rack houses. They can be like 20 
levels of barrels high. They're multi-story buildings. They've got windows all around, which they can open or shut or whatever. So where that, and it's, it's hotter up high, a mm-hmm. lot hotter up high than it is down low. So where are these, and they do rotate the barrels, I think, a lot. But, but still, you're going to have, you know, where the barrels are makes, it, makes a difference. And they get the, you know, whatever. I'm, if you have a contract with MGP that says, we get these pick of these things, here's our specification for our mash bill. And if well, it's exactly the same. I and mean, that's, the, that's the situation. Yeah. Exact same mash bill, exact same liquid at the exact same ABV goes into those, goes into those barrels. The, and they're all the same barrels. Well, they're all made to the same spec. Obviously, every barrel is a little different, which is why you want to go in there and pick which barrels you want. Right. MGP, Midwest Grain Products of Indiana. They sell 50 different brands. Uh, Let's see. They are sold under about 50 different brand names by various bottling companies, but none under its own name. They don't sell... There's no MGP whiskey you can find, but some of these <laughs> some of these are misleadingly marketed as small batch brands by artisanal, quote, craft <laughs> micro distilleries. <laughs> it's lies. They're all lies. The facility's master distiller is Greg Metzi and its largest customer is London-based multinational beverage giant Diageo. I mean, it's fairly obvious. I mean, you have this new distiller that all of a sudden pops up and they have some kind of like 10, 8, 5-year-aged whiskey and you're like, there's no way. Yeah, they formed their corporation two years ago. You know, and like- <laughs> I think it like takes a couple of years to get like your distiller license. Yeah. So you can you can sell a blend. You can like make a blend and you can sell well, you buy that, it on, but you, you buy it wholesale, just like all these people yeah. do. They're just, they're just buying wholesale juice. Yeah, so it's, I don't know. It's just, it's a shady industry. It is. It's, it's just all, it's all, it's a smoke and mirrors industry. Find a bottle that you like for as cheap as you can find Pretty it. Pretty much, exactly. And uh, enjoy. Blind taste. Blind yeah. taste a bunch of 20 to $40 bottles. Mm-hmm. And, and throwing, 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 you know, if you can get friends to come up and bring some nice stuff, throwing some nice ones too and blind taste them. And I guarantee you, you're going to pick some relatively cheap ones as the one you like. Yeah. Even some of my favorites start out really cheap and they know freaking expensive as more people got into them. Well, John, I saw an interesting article this week I wanted to talk about. And it was uh, entitled, How Brands Secretly Buy Their Way Into Forbes, Fast Company, and HuffPost Stories. Ooh. So, um, yeah, it's about this. There's, I guess, a, a TechCrunch editor. This guy's name is John Biggs. And he got a Facebook Messenger request or a, a message from some dude he didn't know who was basically, you know, wanted to pay him to write a story for, I don't think it said which brand it was. And that, that's how the story all started. And I'm, I don't know who wrote this. It was, it was in the outline by a guy named John Christian. Mm-hmm. I got some quotes here. So, uh, interviews with more than two dozen marketers, journalists, and other familiar with these similar pay-for-play offers revealed a dubious corner of online publishing in which publicists, ranging from individuals like this one guy, Sat- Satyam is his name, to medium-sized digital marketing firms that blur traditional lines between advertising and public re- relations, quietly pay off journalists to promote their clients in articles that make no mention of the financial agreement. And this is the kind of thing we talk about all the time, right? Or at least I do. I'm, I'm just so skeptical. I'm like, why would you? These articles almost make no sense. Why they're what's, why, what's, what's why they're clip? why they're playing so favorably to us? To you know, and often it's Salesforce, but any. I mean, it's not just Salesforce though. It's because they're not journalists. They're tech journalists. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's a good one. Let's see if I can find that. Uh, even though you just said it, it's okay. Keep in mind, these aren't real journalists, Richard. They're tech journalists. And that clip is from Silicon Valley. When the great thing about Silicon Valley, why it's so funny, because it's so true. And that clip <laughs> is true. I mean, there are, there are some good tech journalists out there, but there's a lot of bad ones. And there's a lot of this payola type stuff going on. Yeah. 
Uh, here's another one. People involved uh, with these payoffs are extremely reluctant, reluctant to s- discuss them, obviously. But four contributing writers to prominent publications, including Mashable, Business Insider, and Entrepreneur, told me that they have personally accepted payments in exchange for weaving promotional references to brands into their work or on those, on those sites. But are you surprised? No, I'm not surprised at all. I'm su- I, mean, I mean, you're reading I'm, it like, oh, we just uncovered this new no, thing. No, no, no. It's such a it's, shock. We haven't. I mean, I've just... This is, it's, I don't know. It's just fuel to the fire. It is. And it's like, or when you see, uh, you know, different magazines that, that trot out the same old stories about Salesforce every three or four or six months, the stories that Salesforce wants them to run, they're positive. They're always putting Salesforce in a positive light. And again, it's not just Salesforce, but that's what we, what we focus on. I mean, and I'm not saying, it, I'm not, it's, all, it's all about getting the clicks. Listen, though. I'm not saying also, cause I don't know. And I'm not, wouldn't, not, wouldn't be this irresponsible. I'm not saying that Salesforce is out there paying for this, but here's the problem. It's never the company, the, it's never the first party company that does it. As this article mentioned, there's, there are, you have marketing p- uh, firms that you go through, PR firms that you go through, dig, these digital, it even had it in quotes, these digital strategy firms mm-hmm. that you hire to help you do stuff. Yeah, They don't tell you they're doing this. They're, they're doing their job in the, really what's the cheapest. They're, they're trying to cut corners by paying for it. What they're supposed to be doing is working hard and, and having some skills. I don't think it's right? cutting corners. I think it's just it's just the shady side of the business. So anyway, what I'm, the, what I'm saying is, I don't think I'm not saying that Salesforce is going out there and, and doing the pay for play. But I wouldn't be surprised at all if people, if the firms that they're hiring, and I'm sure they've got all kinds of different firms they've hired for different things, mm-hmm. um, are doing this on their behalf, and they don't even know. That's certainly a distinct possibility. Uh, many high volume sites, including Huff, Huffington Post, Entrepreneur, and Forbes. Right? It's another one of my favorite ones, right? Forbes. Mm-hmm. Don't I have a clip for them? I love Forbes. And man. Any monkey with, with a set of lipstick on their pig lips can write it for Forbes. Again, that was, I, not, I, that was not said for no reason. Yeah, well. Uh, anyway, so those, those three, they maintain, networks, they maintain networks of unpaid contributors. Forbes is really bad about this. Who, uh, who publish large amounts of material. Forbes, for instance, marks articles by contributors with a small disclaimer. But the Columbia Journalism Review has pointed out that those dubiously sourced articles are often cited as though they were normal stories written by Forbes staff. In reality, the editorial process that leads to those articles being published is opaque. A Forbes spokesperson declined to answer questions about how many contributors the site has, whether they're or whether they're even paid, or whether an editor reviews their work before publication, which I don't think they do. Because I mean, oh, no. oh it's just yeah. they're horrible. It's like that's always that's why I always say, where are the editors? There are no more editors anymore. Oh, there, there's things that get posted, and the editor finally sees the headline and goes, "Yeah, we're changing." It's just that. obviously so because the shoddy. Link, the link is is the same, but the, uh, the title oh, that the slug, changes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sometimes that's uh, sometimes that's you want to change it out of your article, but it, the link's already out there, and the, you know the news aggregators and things are already. You can't change the link. It's, if you it's, have someone who looks at it and approves it, that that's your chance to catch it. Although what you that. could do is do a three o is a three o two the permanent redirect yeah, to I your think, new link. I think people see that as shady, though. They don't see it. Your browser does it for you. It's mm-hmm. it's so. It's so transparent. You, it happens all the time. You don't even know it. Yeah. It's like when you log into Salesforce and it bounces you through about 18 different... Actually, those aren't... those. I don't even think those are 302s because 302s don't even show up in the URL bar. With Salesforce, you know, like you log in and you know, you'll see it sometimes, especially if you log in, log in through like... Uh, you're going through like um, the success community, the Trailblazer community or whatever, mm-hmm. or you're logging in like the Dreamforce site or something. It bounces you to like eight different sites. So it's like passing your session ID to these various like authorization and f- different third-party systems and back in and all it's like what the hell it's like I'm, i got whiplash by the time i get to the site i was trying to go to 
You really focus on that bar, don't you? Well, I do. I'm a nerd. You know, most Click, people, most people probably watching, don't. Watching, yeah, watching, yeah. watching. <laughs> uh, most people probably don't notice. Click just, two bounces. Well, I mean, like three bounces. The, the the main effect is that it's just actually slow. I mean, because yeah. it takes a while to bounce you between that many different things. Okay, now where was I? Um, one. Well, okay, one former uh, Forbes contributor, John Steimel, has even offered a masterclass on how to get published on their site. An accomplishment he describes as, quote, rewarding, rewarding for both my personal brand and my digital marketing agency. He literally offers a class on how to, how to manipulate. I don't, I don't know if it's by paying or what, but anyway. Um, for writers willing to accept payments in exchange for coverage, that's an opportunity. I got more. An unpaid contributor to the Huffington Post, also speaking on conditions of anonymity, because in her, his words, quote, I would be pretty effed if my name got out there unquote, said that he has included sponsored references to brands in his articles for years in articles on Huffington Post and other sites. On be- By the way, Salesforce has been covered in Huffington Post many times. On behalf of six separate agencies, some agencies pay him directly, he said, in amounts that can be as small as $50 or $175, but others pay him through an, an, uh, his personal PayPal in order to obfuscate the source of the funds. This is disgusting. But not surprising, to your point. Not this is, Am I surprised? Hell, I'm not surprised. I mean, this is... So this is as old as as news is. This is as old as journalism is. Yeah, but, I mean, you're, you're you're making it sound like journalism is this sacred, sanitary place. No, and it no. never has. Oh been. no, no, no. It, that, that's what. No, I just said this is this is as old as journalism is. Yeah. It, it never has been sacred. But I think the the fact that journalism is in a is in an existential crisis right now because of the internet and how you know news that you know look the the newspapers that are failed that don't exist anymore or that have had to come you know totally transform their business mm-hmm. and how. Even on prominent news sites, it, you, you you get paid almost you know peanuts to write for them. I mean, they, there's no money. They can't figure out how to. No one wants to pay for journalism. And even though we all consider it valuable, I think if you did a poll, people would probably say, mm-hmm. "Oh yeah, I, I would value that." The problem is there's not enough money to pay people to do stuff. That's why there are no editors, and and the people that are actually writing the content, you know, they're getting paid crap. You know, it's all per word, and it's like it's crap. You can't make you cannot make a living on this, with the probably exception of a few elite. Mm-hmm. Really well-known writers. <clears throat> All right. Sometimes uh, this guy said that the agency provides him a pre-written article, complete with brand mentions, which he then publishes under his byline as if he wrote it himself. Other times he uses alternate bylines on the same publication, including the Huffington Post, to push out even more content. After being propositioned through Facebook Messenger, this guy uh, Biggs, John Biggs, whatever, goaded by this uh, Satyam, uh, or you know, he goaded him. By quoting improbably high sums in exchange for coverage, eight thousand, then nine thousand, then ninety five hundred, but that was too much, according to Satyam. And uh, a guy at Forbes, he told Biggs, took payments of just eleven hundred dollars, though he did specify for how long you're involved. So he, he's like, hey, I've bought people off at Forbes before, and it only cost me eleven hundred dollars. Anyway, <laughs> it goes on. But so how much? Do, how much do we cost for positive coverage, Jeremy? <laughs> <laughs> Buy me a beer. You're in. <laughs> I should, we should have an Amazon wish list. People can, you know, buy us things for the studio here, and in, in exchange, we'll we'll say nice things about their company or whatever they want. <laughs> <laughs> That's what podcast advertising is. Let's be honest, right? That's exactly what it is. You pretend to like some software that you use or some <laughs> logging service or you know whatever. No, some I, people when it comes to advertising, they they only they they curate them. They curate they, them. Everyone says that. They <laughs> all say that. <laughs> We'll just curate our advertising for products that we feel are are enjoyable yeah. and valuable. Anyway, that's pretty amusing, though, isn't it? I mean, this stuff happens all the time. I guarantee you read every day. You're reading. You're reading 
stuff that, that and that's the worst kind of stuff. That's obviously, but then you've got the gray area. Um, what do they call it? Uh, uh, native advertising, which is weird. That's not that should be illegal. That should be as frowned upon, but it's not as frowned upon. So native advertising, you know what that is? I don't even know what the textbook definition is, but basically, let's say um, you're watching the TV news, mm-hmm. you know, Good Morning America or something. Well, that's not news, but whatever. One of these, any kind of, you know, show that's kind of quasi-journalistic, which by the way, there's no TV news that's anything more than quasi-journalistic. It's TV news for a reason. But let's say they do a second. I don't know. My morning news is pretty, pretty neutral. I mean, it's, it's the, there's an accident on the, on the, on the highway and uh, here's a chef cooking something and, and here's a, here's a, Music player playing some music. Yeah. And- well, let's talk about the chef cooking. You know, he may be he may be cooking with brand new, shiny, all clad brand cookware. Right. Which, oh, which damn it, I didn't think about. Yeah, that. exactly. No, but it's, it's usually more <laughs> like um, you know, they'll have a, a tech segment, and that's their their tech reporter will be reviewing the latest Android phone or something. Or I have know, noticed in some cases, I mean, they, these things they get paid for. The brand, this is native. Other, ca- other times, they don't. It's it's it's. In the content, I mean, the ad is their content. It's an ad disguised as a content, as a as a uh, a segment on the mm-hmm. show, or or on a site or whatever. But it's actually it's actually a paid spot. They just don't call it an ad. They don't let you know it's an ad. How does that is that illegal? I don't think we have laws like that, do we? Sure. I don't know. I think it's frowned upon by society. I see people on uh, Instagram and stuff get crap over not hashtagging advertisement on their stuff. Isn't that when people talk about like some company they'll if they mention the stock ticker, but like the, the, the dollar sign doesn't that, doesn't that mean like I don't know maybe it doesn't like I have a, I have a I have a position in this or I have there's a you know just disclaiming that I have an interest in this stock. I've seen some celebrities like the Kardashians of the world where they'll be wearing something or they'll be like talking about how great something is, oh, but they won't they won't say you're, that it's you're an talking about the the biggest metaphorical and actual horrors in uh, you know pretty much in entertainment, John. <laughs> <laughs> I don't keep up with this stuff. I just I just know uh, a few buzzwords here and there. You got to keep up with the Kardashians. Isn't that the show, Keeping Up with the Kardashians? I literally think yes. that's the name of it. Oh, no. It's all anyway. weird now. Um, well, what else you got? I, know I've, uh, I feel like I've been dominating again. You always dominate your team. Well, because someone's got to keep the show going. You just go off on your tangents. Huh? Okay, you go off on a tangent. Let's go. Speaking John's of soundboard, sorry. why didn't you use uh, um, oh, yeah, yeah, Brent, yeah. Brett's oh, new cool. uh, soundboard that he built us? Yeah, that was pretty awesome. I mean, it looked cool. And he, I, think it's, I think it probably is... I, Mobile, I think you mentioned it was, it works on mobile as well, but now, um, Brett Nelson mm-hmm. built a, uh, a, like a good day sir soundboard. It only, it only three sounds on it, but I told him I need to get them, I need to put these on a Dropbox or something so he can just put all of our, our sound clips on there. That'd be cool. Well, it's not only good for us, but I mean, good for the community because I think a lot of people, the people are always searching for the clips that we use. Oh, no. And I always try to, anytime someone asks for my Slack, I always try to, if I see it, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll drag the file in there. So be nice. Maybe maybe uh, it, it's on Git, so maybe we can fork or not fork, but contribute to it and uh, add a search That's feature, true. those kind of things. I guess the proper thing to do would be send a pull request. <laughs> Is that what you call it? Anyway, yeah. No, th- thanks, Brett, for doing that. That's uh, that was amusing, and I think uh, that would be funny for a lot of people. I think so too. Uh, Facebook is. Uh, Company's best place to work for in the U.S., according to Glassdoor. I saw that. Uh, Salesforce, Salesforce made number fifteen. Salesforce got outbid. Did <laughs> by, by point one. <laughs> I don't know whatever that means. <clears throat> uh, they got beat by HubSpot. So Ooh, that that one. Benioff that beat the HubSpot right? CEO. So Benioff was number one, and yeah. HubSpot was number two CEO. Now remember, HubSpot is the company that the um, who's the guy that wrote the book that had the chapter making fun of Benioff and Dreamforce, especially. Um, 
Oh, was that him? Yeah, yeah. He worked. He worked for HubSpot shortly. And oh, I, that's right. His book was about his book was about HubSpot. What's it called um, right. Yeah, just just what's it called? Uh, Dan Lyons is the guy's name. What was his book called? Disrupted. Mm. Um. Now he worked for HubSpot for like a year, maybe, and it was just you know in his mind it was a just a total. Well, it must have gotten uh, better because it's number seven, so it beats Salesforce in terms of best places to work, yeah. according to Glassdoor. Yeah, it's which is interesting because his whole book is. I think I'm pretty sure it was HubSpot. I got. I hope so. Let's see. Let me look at the Dude, cover. Hold on. I'm trying to check and see if we made the list here. Doesn't look. I like think it was HubSpot, made the but list. no, he just it was. He wanted to document basically how what how horribly they treated people and how like they're just they're ageist and they're they're culturist and they you know they work people to death and it's. It's not, you know, not good. So that's, um, but again, these, I, do you believe any of these rankings? I no. mean, I'm more skeptical of these rankings than anything else. It's, you could, I, I just, I'm, I'm curious about what they use to rank. Is it, is it, you know, oh, they'll say, they'll say it's their... surveys or it's based on their, because Glassdoor is like, it's one of these, it's all user generated content, right? Mm-hmm. And they'll say it's all based on that. But I mean, there's so many from a scientific perspective, there's so much wrong with how that data is collected. It's all, it's all, Selecting it's all selection bias. There's people who are who for some reason have a motivation to actually go to the stupid site and put in a review. <laughs> but that's the problem. Same problem with like Yelp and stuff. I mean, it's it's enough to make a statistician cringe. Not to mention the that Yelp has also gotten in trouble for its own kind of mafia tactics. <laughs> Basically, extorting companies like, listen, you better you better subscribe to our BS service, or uh, you, man, it'd be boy, that'd be horrible if you got some negative reviews, wouldn't it? It would be. <laughs> but we might be able to just make those disappear. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so, I mean, does does that does that influence you in any way? I, I guess for some people, it's like you know, I I need a new job. Who who do I start with? I, I want to go work for a really great company, big company. It's got a lot to offer. Um, there's a lot of people, so I can get lost in the crowd type situation. <laughs> I don't know. I, I would trust Glassdoor as much as I would trust Yelp. I mean, I I, I do look at Yelp, <clears throat> and I'm looking for obvious warning signs or whatever. But other, other than that, I I take gr- Yelp with very much with a grain of salt. Well, I think it's interesting that everyone. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Um, whiskey went down <laughs> the wrong pipe. <laughs> I think it's interesting that that most of these companies on this list, these top companies, are all. Com- um, Software companies, technology yeah. companies. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. The companies that are supposedly the toughest to work for. I mean, I'm trying to the find ones that work a non-technology death. company on here. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't find well, Glass, Ellie May, maybe. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. I'm actually doing some Ellie May uh, work right see. now. Let's see, who else is it? not a <laughs> software or hardware manufacturer? Arm is hardware. Yep. Uh, yeah, they're all... They're all tech companies. What's Ceridian? Maybe Ceridian? I don't know. I don't know what they that do. That sounds very techy to me. It does. Yeah, they're all tech companies. So every company is a software company these days, and the best ones are tech companies. Yeah, well, who was it that, that had that quote? How, you know, every company is a software company. I don't know, like Mark Andreessen or one of these people. Yeah. Basically, every company is a software company nowadays. Anyway. You have your drink? Yeah. Because I think we need to, I think we need a, a drink for something. Uh-oh. We need something bad happen. Something bad going to happen. I, I'm just, I'm just trying to rationalize where this four million developers thing came from. Oh well, you can't. Okay, let's talk about that. Is it, <laughs> so this was, was this the numbers that this supposedly this the company that was scraping the certification site, right? Yeah. Which, by the way, is a trashy thing to do to begin with. And they're obviously doing it for their own self promotion. 
Yeah. Which makes me, it really irritates me that people. Well, no, they, they try, they're, they're trying to do these. I, I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to compile these stats and put them out in the community community as a, they're, they're not trying to monetize this. Yes, they are. They're trying, they're, it's getting them, it's getting eyeballs on their site. What do they do? What do they do? Well, they're, they're consulting. Companies. Exactly. But I mean, the, the, the ranking tool itself is, is it's, it's more, I guess, maybe considered a marketing campaign of some sorts that gets people to. To look, I you guess. know, I want to see who's certified. Oh, yeah, what's the, this company? They're compiling it for it's us. It's not going to be funny when they get a, a lawsuit on their I just see it like the, the kudos of, <clears throat> is it kudos? No, not kudos. Um, what's that thing that ranked your 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 um, Twitter oh, PR? Oh, um, uh, a clout. Clout, yeah. <laughs> maybe it's the clout of Salesforce. You know, maybe that maybe that's what they'll be. Doesn't Salesforce already, isn't that on the App Exchange? Can't you go to like click on the, the human resources tab? <laughs> and it shows you <laughs> aren't there individual people in there they added that years ago well the community I think displays active uh, contributing community members which I think that number is around no they have they have a thing where you can you can hold yourself out on the on the app exchange under like the resources tab mm. and you can you know you can put what your services are what certifications you have and your customers or whoever yeah, can, re- can review it's you it's part of your community thing I think you can you can set up a page for yourself now yeah yeah no, but I mean, you're literally, you're an app exchange entry just like a product would be. Just like an, just like an app exchange package. You are a product. I, I know, you're a resource. <laughs> sell it, sell, sell, sell. Now, so anyways, I mean, I just think, I, I don't know where they're getting these numbers from or how accurate they are because I think the community has, the community says it has 2 million plus active members. People, Who's the community? You mean the Trailblazer community? Yes. Where does yes. it say that? It's on one of their sites. Okay. It, I don't remember exactly where, but I remember seeing the number that they say that there's 2 million. But it's going to be more is, than that because we know there's at least 4 million developers according, according but, to Adam. But according to the numbers compiled by this company, that it, it, the numbers are around 30,000 certified admins. And and everything everything else is below that. Like yeah. admin is the top certification. Yeah. And globally, they're saying somewhere around 30,000. So either they're missing a lot of data or we are nowhere near that 4 billion developers, I mean, million. So where are we getting that number from? I'm just curious. I just really want to know where this number is coming from. Because 4 million is a lot. 4 million is... I mean, is, is my market saturated and I need to go find a, new, a different line of work? 4 million gets, or, gets a, full, a full... Or am I all right? Because there's maybe 10, 10 20,000 of us developers and we're okay. Yeah. There's, enough, there's enough work for us. I mean, that's my concern, right? I think, like I said, what have, what have I said before? I think I've said the four million is off by at least one million, at least one order of magnitude, if not two. Um, look at the um. That's the, that's the interesting interesting thing I like to watch is the because people post their I don't know why they do this post like a photo or a screenshot of their certification uh, certificate that they get on Twitter and stuff every time they take a test. They and, post that they post they post badges. Although I can't. you know what I'm talking about the certificate, the actual the actual certificate. It's like a oh, you get a physical certificate. No, no, no. It's it's just a it's a they, they have an image of it. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I remember getting. But look that. at the number. The certificate Months. number. Those are up in the. It's almost. It's about to hit eighteen million. For what? The the certificate number. So each certificate. Every time someone passes an exam, it gets certified. They get that certificate. That you oh. know, virtual certificate. It's got a number, a certificate number, a serial number on it, and it's about to hit eighteen million. Explain that one to me. Of course, a lot of these guys have, you know, 82 certifications, so maybe that's why yeah. that number's so big. There's some people that really need help. <laughs> it's, like the, the, it's like the, you know, the 38-year-old that's still in school and on his, working on his third PhD. It's like, okay, maybe you should get a job at this point. <laughs> Do something useful. Uh, 
I mean, there, there are some people that are determined to learn everything they can about every inch of Salesforce, uh, at least point and clicky. What the professional students, right? And that's what they're called. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't, I don't know too many developers that are out there grabbing as many certs as they can. It seems to be more like on the admin side of things, the consultant I side know, of things. I, I mean, at least the do. consulting side of things I can understand because Salesforce does kind of rank you by your, by your certs. So that, which is kind of, um, I don't, I'm not, I hate, but I, I don't, I, I've opted out of certs. I, it's, I don't have time for it. And I don't, I don't even. Yes, we know because people have gone out and fact checked us. <laughs> yeah. Well, not fact checked us, looked us up. Yeah. Uh, and what did they find? A big fat nothing burger. Yeah, right. I mean, I'm sure I'm, I know I'm in the database because I used, I used to have sort of, I just don't, I don't maintain them. I don't, I don't, I don't like it. I don't like, it's a, it's such a shortcut. It's such a lazy way of, I mean, listen, if there are people who can get seven certifications in one day, that mm-hmm. tells you something. That tells you right there what these things are worth. It just—it's not a good way to evaluate people, and I don't want anyone evaluating me. I don't want anyone looking at like if I had fifteen certifications, and saying, "Oh, we got to get that guy." No, I don't want—I don't want you hired for me for that reason. I'm the guy that tries to talk people out of hiring me because I want to avoid bad clients and bad projects. That's why you're poor, Jeremy. It could very well could be. <laughs> <laughs> um. All right. That's why um, Jeremy lives in a van down by the river because he, he turns down too much work. <clears throat> pretty much. Uh, another thing that was interesting was uh, Meg Whitman, uh, I guess, resigned as CEO of HP after a pretty good, uh, pretty good reign there. Um, she kind of oversaw the divestiture of lots of their assets and and businesses and stuff, and they're way leaner now, and they make a ton of money, and their stock prices, even though they're they're a way smaller business now, their stock prices you know, far outpaced the S and P um, for quite a while. Yeah, I remember when she. I remember when she took over, and I remember thinking, "Wow, that's not a job I would want." Because they were in serious trouble at the yes. time. They just took. Uh, what did they take? Compaq's. Um, oh God, that was twenty years ago, John. Was this this the same Meg though? Right? No, 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 no. That was way before her time. Um, you're thinking of Carly Fiorina, probably. Oh, maybe. No, Meg Whitman ran. She ran eBay. I think she was like a founder, but ran it and. For gosh, you know, ten years. Is it true that, like that eBay was founded to sell Beanie Babies? I believe so. I've heard that story. Really? Yeah. I always thought that was like a myth. I don't know. Is it a myth? It's worth the people that have come out of eBay. Um, she yeah. did. Um, uh, well, Elon sold uh, oh yeah, to eBay. Elon Musk. Uh, he sold. Um, shoot, what was that? It, it's their whole uh, 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 payment transaction model. What was that? Oh, PayPal? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, he sold PayPal to them. Um, Pierre Omidyar was one, uh, I think. eBay founder. Um, He was the founder, I guess. But who was, um, who's the guy that is a Silicon Valley guy? Um, Peter Thiel, Peter Thiel. Isn't he an eBay guy? You know him? He's the one that's like was paying people not to go to college. He'd pay you a hundred grand to come work for him and not go to college or something like that. <laughs> he's cool? in, interesting thinker. I mean, he's real controversial because, like, I think for a while he thought he was going to be a Trump supporter, or I was a Trump supporter, but I think he, I think he thought that would be a, a fruitful thing for a while. And mm. I don't, I don't really hear his name much anymore in regards to Trump. So I think he kind of backed off of that. But I thought he was an eBay guy. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, oh, he co-founded PayPal. In '99, and served as its chief executive officer until they sold to eBay in yeah. 2002 for 1.5 billion. Okay. Jeez, yeah, I know. 
Oh, John. But anyway, no, I'm just thinking, okay, you got you got Meg Whitman leaving HP. This, you know, you know, middle of the road, like, well, I don't know. I just feel like she's one of those people that it seems like she's she seems to be successful, good, good with people, uh, successful CEO. And uh, there was a rumor that she was going to be the next Uber CEO, but that was before they picked this other dude. I forget his name. Um, oh, so she's, anything, a, so she's available, right? I think Uber needed to hire a woman. Now, here's what she said. Here's, what, here's a quote from her. I might be the only CEO in America who wants to run a smaller company. This is after she quit. Hmm. Well, I mean, when you run a big company like that, I mean, I, I guess smaller is where you want to go, right? Well, so, so HP, I, th- I looked them up. They're like a $30 billion company. You know who's, I don't know, significantly smaller than that? Maybe by a third or so? Uh, good day, sir. Salesforce. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That would certainly. I'm surprised. Cer- H- certainly help with the women. I, I search. am surprised HP is still around, to be honest. But um, I don't know. They've uh, they managed what? to weather in, some. In what some way? Pretty, I mean, because they don't do. They, you know, they're not a computer company. I mean, they're not a computer company anymore. Right? You don't realize yeah. that they're in all kinds of. Yeah. Inter- well, actually, they sold. See, I don't know what they did anymore because they sold a lot of their enterprise software to. Um, Micro, micro, uh, microservices, that's what they're called. Well, I remember them tr- significantly trying to buy a lot of tech and a lot of software and hardware and stuff and trying to transition into being Apple and Microsoft-like in a lot of ways. So I can't remember, did they did they sell off all the instrument business and like, like the, the electronic equipment, like analysis, what are they, what's that called? Like test equipment, all that stuff? Or is that what's actually left in HP? It's okay, when I go to HP, no, it's it's computers. Interesting. Oh, this is HPE though. HPE, right? That's a different thing. It is Hewlett Packard Enterprise, and that's what I believe she was the CEO of. Hmm. Yeah, hybrid IT with cloud, mobile, and mobile and IoT, IT for data and analytics. Yeah. So I don't know all kinds of techie stuff, but I'm thinking, man, this this woman would be perfect at Salesforce in some role. Maybe you know we've all we always speculated, God, when, when's Benioff going to be done? Just like because a lot of times what happens, you know, he's worked on Salesforce for 20 years. He might want to step down as the CEO, but remain as the chairman. That, that's right. a really common thing you see, right? And it's, that's a strong possibility. And, and if, if Meg's looking for, a, again, a smaller company to, to then do what, you know, take on its next, you know, its next uh, journey upwards, then... But I, I have a feeling when you, when, you, when you make a statement like that, I may be the only person that wants to work in a smaller company. That says to me she already has something in mind. Like she's just... She's in a transition period. Maybe she's so. taking a few, like a sabbatical yeah. off, and and you know she's already got her next play in mind. Yeah. No, no, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Mm. Let's see. Um, there was that somebody I can't remember who posted it, but posted a link to this uh, article. It was called. Let me look on this. Uh, Prod. Oh. Project management, a surefire way to kill your software product. Did you read that? I didn't read the article. That is a great article. And I want to kind of dissect that and maybe talk about that on a future show. Because that really punches some of my buttons. Yeah, I it. It, it sounded like it did. Well, let's see. How are we doing on time? We are at uh, an hour and 20 minutes. Probably a good place to stop. Unless you, What else you got, John? Anything, you want to get anything off your mind? I don't know if you want to talk about it. I got all sorts of things on my mind. Is it, Do you this, really want to ask that question? Is this where you're going to start complaining about me and stuff? No. Get, get things off your chest? No. I got a bunch of boring stuff. I don't I'm care. Boring person. No, I, I, no, honestly, I don't. I, I've, I've been sick. I haven't had a chance to really digest much or even get into stuff. I've been backlogged with work, so I'm trying to catch up and make my apologies to everyone. 
Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm done. Beg for forgiveness. Beg for forgiveness. Yeah. Hands and knees. All right. Um, any uh, announcements? We are we getting any uh, email in the in the info box? Uh, we did not. Yeah, I haven't seen anything. That, that's just that's done. <laughs> Do we have anyone <laughs> listens to this podcast anymore? <laughs> Does anyone still listen? Hello. Is this thing is this thing on? <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, we like to get email, but it doesn't happen anymore. So if you'd like to change that trend, send us an email, info at goodday.surpodcast.com. Questions, topics, whatever. Reviews. Uh, yeah, review us. iTunes, you know, Stitcher, which we don't even exist on. What's the other one? Google Play. Those are all good. The podcast app, subscribe, so you get it automatically. What else, John? Share us, join share our, us on the join socials. Our, oh, join our Slack, Slack channel. Yeah, We've got, we got a fun Slack. Yeah. Uh, just uh, email us, right? No, you don't. No. You got our website. You got our website. Gooddaysirpodcast.com. Click on community and just enter your email address and John will add you. Did I tell you I found a secret feature in Slack? No. I did. There's apparently an invite link that you can set up that will auto that, that will auto in, auto uh, register someone. There are tons of scripts. Of, I've already, we've talked about this. No, I mean, You can go no. to GitHub and find 10 different things I that know. do this. Those are hosted, but this is a secret Slack feature oh. hosted by Slack. Okay. But you have to know the URL to get it. Is it like a you know a random no. thing so people can't guess it, or is it like easily it's, guessable? It's a feature they've been uh, testing and prototyping, so you have to be in the know to know that it exists. And then when you get there, you get a page that lets you generate a link, and then you can put put that link behind a button on your website, and that takes them to the Slack page where they can enter their email address, verify the email, and get into this channel. It's weird that this is a like a difficult and secret thing like it's a it's a community slash team software like yeah it should be easy to set someone up it should be easy for someone to register sure. like how is that why is that oh <laughs> that should be should have been part of the mvp like how do people actually get into the thing <laughs> how is that still not a solved problem it just isn't registering oh all right <laughs> i think that does us john oh and to that i say good day sir you get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir.